Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. As listeners to this show already know, the Civil War didn't end at Appomattox Courthouse. We know about the rebel armies of Johnston in North Carolina, Kirby Smith in the Trans-Mississippi. And we also know that the Reconstruction years that followed were marked by so much political violence that some scholars consider it, consider it a guerrilla continuation of the war. But less well-known is what happened when the federal government, under President Ulysses S. Grant, mustered the political will to suppress that violence. In 1871, the U.S. Army was deployed to South Carolina to destroy a large-scale terrorist operation. We'll learn the result from Fergus M. Bordewick, author of Clan War, Ulysses S. Grant, and the Battle to Save Reconstruction. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a chilly February evening in 2024 from the campus of East Carolina University, specifically in the Brewster Building on the third floor, celebrating the legacy of Lawrence F. Brewster, for whom the building is named, but not speaking for Professor Brewster or the building or ECU or anybody else, just myself, representing no one, and likewise, my guest speaks only for himself, as is always the case at Civil War Talk Radio. Well, it is... Uh, the dark hour in the first uh, half of the semester, we're getting up to first midterms this week here at ECU, and it's uh, a little bit chilly here for North Carolina. It was cold in Washington, D.C. this past weekend where I traveled. Uh, my wife was taking some students to a model UN program, uh, and I hitched a ride and accompanied the group so I could scout out locations for a future tour of the city for uh, 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 for 
the that would relate to Abraham Lincoln. Uh, every year, I enjoy going with people on the Stephen Ambrose historical tours, uh, the tour of Civil War battlefields called This Hallowed Ground, and I've long thought it would be good to do a similar one, focus focusing on Lincoln in the Civil War. So uh, I was just scouting out some sites, going to places I hadn't been to in a while, like Ford's Theater or the uh, President Lincoln's Cottage, and uh, it was uh, it was great to see these places again and, and get an idea of what might happen. And a very nice afternoon at President Lincoln's Cottage, uh, which if you've never been to, you absolutely uh, need to make time to see. Uh, the one of the associate directors, uh, Cameron, gave me a very nice private tour of the building. The uh, all the tour guide there had the good sense to speak well of uh, did Lincoln own slaves and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln, uh, a book that they sell in their their bookshop. In fact, uh, Cameron asked me to sign a copy of it for her husband, Ben, who listens to this show. So here's a shout-out to Ben as well. Uh, where else did we go? Fort Theater, I mentioned, the Peterson House, uh, Fort Stevens, uh, the old patent office building, now the home of the National Portrait Gallery. It's an interesting location. I thought about going to the Navy Yard and the, the Navy Museum, but that is undergoing renovation. It wasn't open at the time I was there. Uh, some places you really can't go. The White House is, is requires many hoops to go through to get uh, to get into with a tour group. So uh, I will put the word out to you, uh, listeners. If you have thoughts of where would you want to go if you wanted on a tour of DC uh, to see sites related to Abraham Lincoln, uh, uh, I'd, I'd welcome your suggestions. I would also welcome you joining me next week when we come back with uh, Harold Holzer, longtime favorite guest of the show. His brand new book is just out, brought forth on this continent, Abraham Lincoln and American Immigration. We'll return the week after that, February 21, with Scott Hippensteel and his book on sedimentary geology and combat uh, in a book called Sand, Science, and the Civil War. I've heard Scott speak, and it, for such a esoteric topic, it's it's pretty interesting. On the 28th, Cecily Zander's first book is now out, The Army Under Fire, The Politics of Anti-Militarism in the Civil War Era. And then we get to March, March 6th. It'll be spring break week. I will be uh, drinking fruit-flavored drinks with umbrellas in them. Not actually lying on a beach anywhere, sitting on the sofa, clicking on YouTube videos, but uh, pretending that I'm on spring break and probably writing something, and uh, but no show that week. And just to keep us uh, a month ahead, on March 13th, Victor Vignola will be a first-time guest. He's written a book called Contrasts in Command, The Battle of Fair Oaks, May 31 to June 1, 1862. And then John Reeves returns to the show, another uh, guest we've had on before. His new book is called Soldier of Destiny, Slavery, Secession, and the Redemption of Ulysses S. Grant. That will make the third Grant book in the spring season, not intentional. Last week we talked about uh, Grant and General Order uh, Number 11, the infamous 
uh, order expelling uh, the Jewish, what he meant to be Jewish peddlers, but all Jews from his military district, and uh, uh, had a good conversation about that. And tonight we're talking about Grant and uh, the Ku Klux Klan in the 1870s, and then in March, John Reeves. All Grant all the time? No. Uh, well, it's just a coincidence. You can influence these choice of future guests, by the way, when you email me, and you can also uh, find out who's going to be on by going to impedimentsofwar.org, the website where Mark Gaffney keeps the schedule up to date. You can buy a T-shirt there, Sherman Civil War Talk Radio T-shirt, a Lincoln one. I don't have a Grant one yet. Maybe next year. Uh, and you can contribute to Civil War Talk Radio. The bourbon and books fund fluctuates all the time. It's always uh, I'm always happy to see it grow. If you can see your way to contributing, say five cents for every show ever recorded. There are six hundred of them, so that'd be thirty dollars a bargain at any price. Uh, feel free to contribute, but don't deduct it on your taxes. It's not tax deductible. But tonight we have a, it's always good to bring a guest back, uh, but better to do it more frequently than once every uh, 18 years, I believe would be the right number. Uh, Fergus Bordewick was last here talking about the Underground Railroad almost two decades ago. Uh, he's written a lot of books since then, and uh, this one, his alert agent, took the time to contact me and say, you should have this on. And I will tell you, listeners, I wrestled with this because the book is called Clan War, Ulysses S. Grant and the Battle to Save Reconstruction. And technically, Reconstruction is outside our, 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 our purview here on Civil War Talk Radio. If, if we opened it up to all Reconstruction books, there's just there's so many Civil War books, what would we do? But the topic is so important. It is a military uh, event, really, that we talk about, that our author talks about in this book. And uh, I just thought it was too important a book not to to discuss. So with that, uh, Fergus, are you there? Yes, indeed I am. Uh, Good evening, Jerry. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Well, it's good to have you back. It was uh, an... as always happens, as, as age goes along and memory compresses, I thought, oh, he was on the show about six years ago. And then I looked in the records and saw, no, no, that it was a, way longer than that. Uh, but I'm delighted to have you back and uh, happy to be talking about this book, which brings Ulysses S. Grant uh, to the foreground, as did our book last week, uh, uh, Jonathan Sarna's book on, on called When Lincoln Expelled the Jews. And one of the commonalities of that book and this one, uh, in terms of Grant, is he starts out describing how how Grant issues this you know just dreadful order, but spends the rest of his life repenting it and uh, going out of his way to demonstrate a lack of prejudice. It, you start your book talking about Grant and his political views, especially his views on slavery and race. Uh, there's a little bit of a similar arc in this this book, it seems to me, that, that Grant uh, progresses over time. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's that's uh, uh, quite right. Um, 
he he evolved the trite word, but it's but it's an accurate word. He was born, as you know, in, uh, to an abolitionist father. He was not a principal figure in the abolitionist movement, the father, but <laughs> he was an abolitionist. So there was that kind of sentiment in the home. But Grant wasn't raised an abolitionist. He certainly wasn't politically active before the war. Uh, I think he shared the a kind of quiet disapproval of slavery, but he grew up on the Ohio River and um, was a man of his time and place and uh, was obliged to tolerate it where it existed. Um, And as we also know, he briefly owned one enslaved man just Mm -hmm. on the cusp of the Civil War, who was a a wedding gift, of all things, from his his slave-owning in-laws. And he was very uncomfortable with that. He freed the man after a year, when he could afford to, uh, rather than sell him. Uh, and that, that, that decision tells you something about his values at the beginning yeah. of the war. And then, in addition, as a soldier during mm-hmm. the war, he welcomed fugitive slaves into his camps, unlike many other Union officers uh, who sent fugitives back to their masters. Grant didn't. He gave them work. He uh, had schools sometimes uh, set up for for fugitive, fugitive children. He welcomed the recruitment of black troops in the war and praised their, their, their caliber as, as fighting men. Um, he's a sensitive man. Uh, I mean, one of the things that becomes clear, the more the deeper you go into Grant, is that he was unusually sensitive, I think, for mm-hmm. a, a military man. Uh, he had a depth of human feeling, and he, uh, I don't know if, um, like, say, Thaddeus Stevens, he personally empathized with those who were enslaved. It's clear that Stevens did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had, he felt a, a sense of responsibility and a sense of caring, and uh, he became a very strong supporter of the several Reconstruction Amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th, which he advocated for. Uh, I mean, there's more to be said on this subject, but but, uh, as you you put it, he evolved. And and that put him at odds with his commander-in-chief, Andrew Johnson, uh, after the war, after Lincoln's assassination, uh, his support for those amendments and his support for civil rights generally. uh, that, That must have been a difficult... Uh, needle to thread for for Grant because he's also an obedient soldier. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that I think that's so. But you know, Grant, as as we know, was a, was a stubborn man, stubborn in a good sense, and occasionally in a sense that didn't serve him well later on mm-hmm. as, at certain moments as president. But uh, uh, I, 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 you've been and many of your listeners, if not most, have been to uh, the the uh, site of the wilderness battles, and mm-hmm. famously, uh, 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 Grant Grant will, will will telegraph to Lincoln. I propose to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. Stubborn, mm-hmm. and and uh, uh, so Grant, when you when you see him interacting and trying not to interact often with with Andrew Johnson whom he came to despise. Yeah. Uh, you see that stubbornness. He's not about to be pushed around, bullied, or, or uh, uh, otherwise influenced by, by Johnson. Uh, Grant is becoming 
essentially a radical Republican in the years after the war. For a man who was not inherently political, that is, it, it, it's a remarkable step. Uh, he becomes essentially uh, an ally of and a cooperator with the uh, people like Thaddeus Stevens, uh, although he, uh, Stevens dies in 68, um, Ben Wade and others, uh, because he shares their values. So he works, uh, he, he ends up working you know, against Johnson, ends up running for president, uh, replacing Johnson. Uh, and there he, now the, the political problem of the South is on him. And of course, one of the problems is the organization uh, for which your book is titled. And we'll get to that yeah. after we come back from a short break. We're talking tonight with Fergus M. Bordewick. He's the author of Clan War, Ulysses S. Grant, and the Battle to Save Reconstruction. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P. O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Fergus M. Bordewick, author of Clan War, Ulysses S. Grant, and the Battle to Save Reconstruction. The uh, the clan, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, that Grant battles with. You describe how it was formed, and maybe an initial point to remind listeners of is that this is not the 20th century clan. This is not the clan of our fathers or grandfathers' generation. Um, uh, what? What? Tell us about the origins of the, uh, the the Reconstruction era clan. Sure, um, I'm glad you made the point about distinguishing the original clan, which is the one that figures in my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was founded in 1866 from the 20th century clans, which are quite different. There is not a, there's not really a through line uh, from the 19th to the 20th century, except in sentiment. 
but the organization was not continuous. So <laughs> the origin of the Klan, the, the original Klan in 1866, was um, uh, something I, I, I suppose that, uh, that most people aren't aware of and will be surprised by. It was founded by about half a dozen uh, rather frustrated and bored um, former uh, Confederate soldiers, young men, all of them college-educated. I want to underscore the point that the Klan of the 19th century was not a random gang of, of hooligans and thugs and, and, and random troublemakers. Uh, mm-hmm. It was led virtually everywhere uh, by local elites, that's to say men who had typically been Confederate officers, uh, landowners, often journalists, occasionally ministers, business people, and so on. Of course, they they vacuumed up a lot of men with um, less education and so on, and, and and who often were obliged to do much of the dirty work for the Klan. But it was it was an organization led by people who very much thought of themselves as as, as elites. Anyway. Half a dozen guys meeting in a lawyer's office in Pulaski, Tennessee. That's about 80 miles south of Nashville. Very nice little town if you ever happen to pass through there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, they, they, as I said, were, were kind of bored. The town had been pretty well ravaged during the war. And they hit upon this idea of, of establishing a kind of young men's fraternity, um, not an infrequent sort of thing. In in uh, in America of that time, and they were shopping around for names they could call themselves, and they hit on this 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 uh, strange label, the Ku Klux Klan. It doesn't mean anything, no matter what you might have heard. It doesn't mean anything. They plucked these words out of the air um, because they sounded spooky. It was not initially a terrorist organization, although it became one within, within a year. Uh, they dressed in uh, funky costumes and would would pop up in odd places around the town of Pulaski, uh, even giving interviews to the local newspaper and uh, showing up at picnics and playing the banjo and whatnot. But they also, and this is what caught the eye of more sinister individuals, they also entertained themselves by scaring newly freed people, black Americans, uh, who are on the cusp of citizenship and assert, beginning to assert themselves as free people. Now, they didn't, in this initial group, uh, commit crimes against them beyond harassment, which said to say was not a, a crime at the time. Uh, but within about six months, a group of higher-ranking former Confederate officers meeting in Nashville essentially co-opted what was also what was already becoming kind of a popular movement, this fraternity down in that part of Tennessee, they co-opted it and did set out to turn it into a terrorist organization with two goals. One, to, um, uh, as best they could, scare freed black people uh, back into something as close to servitude as they could, scare them out of public life, and two, to destroy the embryonic Republican Party in the South. The South, I'm sure most of your listeners know, did not have a two-party system uh, to speak of uh, once the Whig Party had had, had um, disintegrated before the war. And the Republican Party was new, brand new. 
and and of course it had a huge appeal among African Americans. It became a vehicle for African Americans to begin uh, to act politically, and those were the targets of the of the of the Klan within its first year. Uh, what about Nathan Bedford Forrest? Um, a lot of people associate him with the founding of the Klan. Sure. Yeah, well, well, they associate him incorrectly with the early mm-hmm. Klan. He wasn't its founder. Uh, sometimes it, people will say that he was. That's not accurate. Mm-hmm. He was uh, essentially recruited by that group of officers in Nashville. Uh, Forrest, of course, was himself from Memphis. He was plugged into uh, public affairs in Tennessee. Uh, he was, as everyone here will know, uh, uh, a pre-war slave trader, very well before the war. That wealth was wiped out by the war, of course, once people were freed. Uh, second, as a talented uh, Confederate cavalry, uh, quasi-guerrilla commander during the war, he operated most effectively when he was kind of on his own. He was a war criminal. He presided over the appalling uh, Fort Pillow massacre of mostly black federal troops in 1864. And then finally, he is, as I said, drafted or recruited, recruited by, by former uh, wartime um, fellow officers of his to become the first uh, grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. What that meant was partly he, well, he was charismatic, okay? Mm-hmm. And he had a charisma certainly among former Confederates, embittered, depressed, deflated former Confederates. Uh, And he drew people to the movement. And he also, as best I can tell, that this is very, very challenging stuff to research, Mm -hmm. he served as a very significant, probably the paramount kind of traveling organizer for the Klan, uh, uh, helping to expand the Klan from its original base in Tennessee to other parts of the South, particularly Alabama, Georgia, and, and elsewhere. Uh, wherever he, he he was posing as an insurance uh, um, salesman or executive, uh, although not so surprisingly, wherever he stopped, uh, a one or more new dens of the Klan sprang up, and, uh, and soon after that, violence ensued. So uh, he mattered a great deal to the early development of the Klan. Uh, he later he later kind of sidled out of it because it was not any longer after about 1868 to be in his interest to to be further involved with the Klan in a formal way. Uh, you mentioned, but he was yeah. Let me ask you. You mentioned that say violence ensued, and in your book you describe. Uh, in many many examples of of clan violence uh, of, of suppression of voting rights by by intimidation or by actual violence uh, against both white and black republicans in the south uh, at, there were times when this was a hard book to read because the atrocities are so vivid uh, the things that the the clan did to its victims uh, it must have been hard to write uh, yeah, uh, yes, sometimes they were, and I was, I tried to be judicious in, in how much to include, but I found it was mm-hmm. imperative for people to re- to know what the truth was, 
And by the way, the Klan's activities are extremely well documented in great detail, both in the records of the uh, Freedmen's Bureau, uh, which are now available online, and also in the massive investigation of the Klan in 1871 by a joint congressional committee, which included both Republicans and Democrats. So this was not a, a sort of one-side hatchet job that could be dismissed, as it sometimes was, by the Klan's apologists. Uh, yeah, and... Well, let me jump in any... and just say, yeah. there also, uh, since we were talking about Grant earlier, he authorized uh, United States soldiers to collect stories. When, when he, before he became president, uh, Bill Blair has published the book that you cite in your bibliography, The, the Record of Outrages, uh, Yes, that that, that yes. the army collected all these stories of the horrible things yes. that, that the white southerners were doing uh, uh, at the time. So, as you say, this is extremely well documented. There's, there's, it's not a, a matter of historical debate uh, whether these things happen. The, the firsthand evidence is very clear. Yeah, it, it, there's an immense amount of material, really an immense amount. The, the record of the record of the congressional committee I referred to is six thousand mm-hmm. pages by itself, uh, 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 which includes. I, I should say this is this document. I, it's it's thirteen volumes. It's not just one document. Is also available online or in print, uh, and it, it was the first time in American history that a congressional committee took testimony. Uh, from African Americans or from women, many women mm. testified also about what had been done to their sons, husbands, brothers, fathers. Uh, so it's it's an extraordinary body of material. When you're you're hearing the voices of people who have lived this, talking to you virtually in real time. Okay, it's not a massaged document record. It's it's uh, very detailed. It was also so it was also striking to read how open the Klan was in this violence. Things like the murder of John W. Stevens in North Carolina, yeah. uh, as an example, murdered in the county courthouse. I mean, he's a he's a well-known, prominent local figure. Uh, he's not, not uh, a, an obscure sharecropper or anything. And he he's, he's an office holder, and, and they execute him, and everyone knows it's been done and who did it, nothing happens. No no consequences for Klan violence until uh, until after Grant becomes president. Uh, yeah, that, that's uh, the perfect example. John Stevens, um, this is in Caswell County, uh, mm-hmm. North Carolina, up near the Virginia line, that's somewhat south of Danville, uh, Virginia, but in North Carolina. Yeah, he was lured into the into the, the lumber room, actually, of mm. the county courthouse. You can visit the courthouse today. You can visit the room. Mm. Did they have anything there? Is there like a marker <laughs> or a plaque or anything? There is a marker in the little square uh, in front of the courthouse. Okay. Uh, and I, I just went into the building and asked around, and one of the clerks said, oh, that room. And she said, yeah, this is, a, you know, a very... Well, all very informal, local sort of thing. But there is a local historical society, which um, has, I would say, an ambivalent position on this murder, but uh, but nonetheless was helpful. Um, uh, there's a marker, but Stevens is still treated as a controversial figure in Caswell County, locally. Very, very interesting man. Two, 
two books about this murder came out this year, 2023. Really? Um, wow. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as you said earlier, you know, the, the, the barbarism of the of the clan, the the, the savagery uh, of the atrocities they perpetrated on people, is sometimes makes you gag. It's like uh, it, it's no different from what terrorist organizations in other parts of the world perpetrate today that we read about in the newspapers. Uh, I mean, Americans, I think, perhaps don't many don't really want to believe this was that regular or normal Americans were perpetrating crimes like this against other human beings, both black and white. Uh, but it's true. It's true. Um, and the Klan was able to uh, uh, wreak havoc with impunity for years, several years until a grant uh, began to wage war against them. Because on one hand, Edward Johnson did not want to pursue the Klan. It began under Johnson's presidency. He was a a, 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 his political future lay with 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 uh, reenfranchising white Southerners. He wasn't going to antagonize them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in addition, the the Klan had was often led by or included people from local law enforcement, judges, even magistrates, constables, sheriffs, deputy sheriffs the very people who would be necessary to prosecute the Klan. And because the Klan was so ruthless, uh, thousands of people were killed, by the way, minimum of 2,000. Many, many, many more were, were, were menaced, shot, uh, and tortured in other ways. Many, many, many more. I mean, they, they, they scared people uh, away from attempting to bring prosecutions. This comes to a head in in South Carolina in 1871, why why there and then? Do you suppose? Yeah, um, well, upcountry South Carolina. We're talking about a, a cluster of counties in the northern part of the state. Um, was an epicenter. There were several, many epicenters of Klan activity, but uh, it's uh, uh, pretty well documentable that more than 60% of the white males in those counties were members of the Klan. And the rest was terrified of the Klan. Now, the number is probably even higher. In some counties, it was north of 70%. Um, So, one, the Klan activity there was intense. It was extremely violent. There was no law and order. uh, at least certainly for the freed for freed people and white republicans uh who were who were uh, uh killed threatened tortured as i've said um, so i i don't want to imply that that was the main, that was the only place where the clan was active like this but it was it was one of the most prominent areas and grant determined to to begin what I referred to, and people then did too, as his war against the Klan, by using South Carolina as an example uh, mm-hmm. to demonstrate that if he, he was prepared to break the Klan in one of its strongest strongholds, uh, and that by doing so, he would uh, uh, sufficiently intimidate the Klan elsewhere that they would... Uh, 
either either cease activity or or even suppress it amongst themselves. And I, he proved to be correct in that, by the way. Uh, so he say so he gets authority. Uh, Congress passes a series of enforcement acts that authorize him to use federal force to to enforce the rights of the, the new amendments: the Fourteenth Amendment for civil rights, the Fifteenth Amendment for voting rights, and uh, that really gets us to the the title of your book, "Clan War." Mm-hmm. We're going to take another short break and come back and talk about. Uh, the fight itself. We're talking tonight with Fergus M. Bordewick, author of of Clan War, Ulysses S. Grant, and the Battle to Save Reconstruction. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Fergus M. Bordewick, author of Clan War, Ulysses S. Grant, and the Battle to Save Reconstruction. Now, Fergus, one of the things that surprised me uh, was I realized the depth of my ignorance. I always thought, well, when Grant suspends habeas corpus, sends the army in, he's going to occupy nine counties. He'd need at least a division led by a major general to to cover that much ground in the Civil War. But you describe it's actually three companies of cavalry led by a major uh, is all it took to to really turn the tide. Uh, Tell us about Major Lewis Merrill and, and, and what his men did. Sure. Um, I, I, I want to put this in context. I want to put the mm-hmm. numbers in context. Yes. Uh, it's still not uncommon uh, uh, for for people to 
think of this Reconstruction South as under under military occupation, or that mm-hmm. there was something that could be referred to as bayonet rule. These are myths. These are myths that are part of lost cause pseudo historiography. Okay. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. By 1868, the total number of federal troops in the 11 former Confederate states was 12,000, spread over 11 states, and it, about a third of those are on the Texas frontier facing Indians. So the numbers in, in, in are, are, during the era of the Klan's ascendancy were tiny, and those troops were nearly all infantry and uh, if you think about it, it won't take long. It's kind of tough for uh, foot soldiers to catch men on horseback, which is what the Klan, how the Klan operated. They were hit and run using cavalry tactics that I, I think uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest encouraged. Anyway, so, yes, uh, the, the number uh, Grant sent into South Carolina was comparatively small, but many multiples of the very small number that had been there before. Lewis Merrill, the major who commanded them, and this unit, by the way, is the 7th Cavalry. Uh, There were other units there, but Merrill belonged to the 7th Cavalry, and yes, that is the same unit that wound up uh, and was nearly wiped out at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Uh, uh, Merrill himself, uh, fortunately for him, was not at the Little Bighorn in 1876, uh, Merrill was in a new, somewhat unusual. He was uh, a pre-war abolitionist, not common in the military ranks. He was a lawyer. Uh, he had spent the Civil War very successfully fighting and, and, and chasing down Confederate guerrillas in Missouri. So you put all those things together, it was a, he was the perfect man for the job mm-hmm. in South Carolina. Uh, he was a very forceful uh, commander. Uh, he had mostly veteran troops, or enough veteran troops among those he, he brought to South Carolina to be effective. But he 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 really broke the Klan by by from within. That's to say, he organized a very effective um, spy network, uh, which included both uh, white and black South Carolinians. Uh, like any good uh, um, detective in any police department, he, he broke the mob from the bottom up. That's to say, he, he picked off men at the bottom who um, would testify to him, give evidence to him about the Klan. So he very quickly found out who was leading it, what they were doing, what their plans were. And for months, he play, was playing a kind of cat and mouse game with the Klan. Ultimately, he prevailed. Um, there's a long story, of course, it's in the book, but mm-hmm. suffice it to say that the Klan, oh, I thought they were brave and heroic when they were facing unarmed civilians, often isolated in their small cabins or dragged out of their homes in the middle of the night and so on. Uh, and, and frequently those dragged out were not just men, but they were women and children. Yes, the Klan did to women and children the worst that you can imagine. Uh, uh, but once they were faced with, uh, with, with veteran, veteran cavalry troopers armed with, armed with repeating rifles, they, they caved. They wouldn't fight. They were cowards in the end. 
They were cowards. They thought they were heroes, but only fighting civilians. So that's kind of the military side. There was also a legal side, which is very important here. It can't be divorced. Uh, uh, um, Grant's attorney general at the time was a man named Amos Ackerman. Very interesting guy. He uh, uh, was a Republican from Georgia, although originally born in the North, made his life in Georgia, uh, who joined the Republican Party after the war and was profoundly uh, transformed by seeing enslaved people become free uh, and became a, a, a radical. And the more white Southerners became radicals than people generally imagine, but that's a separate conversation. And Ackerman uh, focused the activities of the Justice Department, newly founded department, by the way, the Justice Department, focused on breaking the Klan and dispatched prosecutors into the South who would prosecute the Klan, unlike the state prosecutors in the years before who wouldn't. And uh, something like 5,000 members of the Klan were, were arrested, uh, gave testimony, um, confessed. A much smaller number wound up in jail, and that's another story, but uh, uh, because the rug was pulled out from under Reconstruction by the, after 1874 by a Democratic-controlled Congress that didn't want to pay for it. But um, the war as such, both military and, and uh, judicial, was very successful. But the, the you point out that Ackerman reports to Grant that there is, a, in effect, a rebellion going on in the South, that there's no law and order, that the Klan can commit crimes with impunity, and that gives Grant the uh, the authority to confront a rebellion by suspending habeas corpus so these arrests can be made and, and local Klan judges can't then free yeah. all the 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 detainees and and i was interested to read the army was given the, the power of being federal marshals so the soldiers could make these arrests uh so so you don't need to rely on local police who again are probably members of the clan uh it, it once you had these tools uh as you describe in your book suddenly you've got hundreds uh and then thousands of arrests and, and trials uh uh but Let's jump forward a little bit to what you just alluded to, that uh, as successful as this was in South Carolina and, and by example elsewhere uh, in, in deterring Klan activity, obviously uh, we do not enter a post-racial era in the 19th century. Uh, the, the, why, what how does the Klan survive, or how, how does... What, what goes wrong, ultimately? Yeah, um, okay. Uh, I, I'll, 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 I'll point out again what I said a few minutes ago, because it's important to, to remember this, that uh, you know, we're accustomed to saying Reconstruction ended in 1877 with the, mm-hmm. um, a, a deal that, that put Rutherford B. Hayes, a Republican, in the presidency, uh, um, uh, in an agreement when he agreed to withdraw federal troops from the South. Well, um, that's only vaguely accurate, okay? The, the crucial date, in my view, really, is 1874, 
when, as I said, mm-hmm. Democrats want control of the House of Representatives. Money bills mm-hmm. are, arise in the House of Representatives. Democrat, right. The Democratic Party was rebuilding itself, uh, having been split during the war. Northern Democrats are embracing their former Confederate, former pre-war Democratic allies with open arms. There's no future for the Democratic Party unless they do that. And the Democrats, who were essentially the reactionary party of that time, um, uh, uh, have opposed Reconstruction. Uh, they oppose Grant. Uh, of course, they they undercut Republican uh, politicians whenever they can. And they they will no longer fund either uh, a, mil- a significant military presence in the South or uh, enough enough prosecutors, enough federal prosecutors uh, to prosecute the Klan adequately. Um, I mean, that's, that's the crucial moment. Mm-hmm. Now, some prosecutions continue after 1874, but the number plummets. Uh, so what else is happening? What's, what's kind of the, the background to that? Well, one by one by one, former Confederate states are being recovered or redeemed in the language of that time, redeemed by um, Democrats, that is, former Confederates. Uh, and once they have the reins of power in, in the former Confederate states, they begin disenfranchising African-Americans uh, by legal means, that's to say, creating hurdles to make it mm-hmm. harder and harder and harder for black Americans to vote. Um, now, the, the, and the impact of the Klan, the Klan has had taken a toll, even though Grant mm-hmm. has defeated them. That's to say, a lot of African-Americans who had very, very high hopes for the future during the earlier years of Reconstruction, have essentially been scared, have been scared out of public life. Um, so once Democrats are in control in the southern states, uh, the, the, the future of the, the two-party system there uh, becomes narrower and narrower and narrower. Um, it doesn't. There, there, there are still a couple of black um, congressmen being elected as late as the turn of the 20th century, but. Just a couple, very few, and have been pretty much uh, stripped out of state government through through legislative means uh, in the intervening years. So that's that's the after story. Um, and the, I mean, there are different tragic as, uh, aspects to this, but the fact that Congress would not fund what needed to be done to preserve. Uh, constitutional rights in the South gave us another hundred years of 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 Jim Crow segregation and 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 the uh, and later the twentieth century Klan. You know that's getting us uh, far far away from the Civil War. Well, you you also describe uh, there are Supreme Court decisions and slaughterhouse cases and Crookshank and other decisions that go against the efforts of Congress and President Grant uh, to try to enforce civil rights. We have just two minutes left. Um, Let me go ahead and ask you a question that takes us far afield from the Civil War. Uh, Having written this book and and studied this aspect of American life, do you feel hope, 
did it make you more hopeful for the future or despair for the future to to, to, to read of these activities? Well, I never despair for the future. I, I, I uh, uh, <laughs> or how to put it, I, I, I sometimes uh, think of myself as kind of a, uh, an optimistic cynic, just to say, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, uh, I, you know, one has to look very clearly and coldly at the shortcomings, both of individuals and institutions and, uh, um, and, and politics, uh, on the other hand, the United States has pre- has has been remarkably flexible, both politically and as a culture. You know, we've we've prevailed, survived, and prevailed uh, over you know through many, many, many extremely difficult periods, including the one I wrote my book about. And mm-hmm. uh, I think our present moment is a challenging one too. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but you know th- this book is in part about Americans leaders. I mean, Grant is the pivotal figure here, but uh, Ackerman, uh, uh, Lewis Merrill, and others Merrill. in the yeah. book figuring. Uh, you know, the the yes, it's oh. Albion Torjay comes up a lot too yeah. uh, for as yeah. a hero. Yeah. Wonderful man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Albion uh, Torjay in North Carolina. Yeah, uh, these are, these are people who were who really strove heroically to solve problems that seemed as if they couldn't be solved and to make American institutions work. Um, and to some extent, they, they succeeded, not, not perfectly by any means. But, well, that's, that's um, a hopeful note, I think, on which we can end. Unfortunately, <laughs> we are out of time. Uh, but okay. I'm glad to hear you say that. I, that. There were times reading the book, I thought, wow, you know, what have we done? Uh, but other times you say the heroes step forward and you say, we can, we can defeat this. We can, we can overcome, uh, listeners decide for yourselves, uh, read the book clan war, Ulysses S. Grant and the battle to save reconstruction. It's written by our guest tonight, Fergus M. Bordewick. Fergus, it's a pleasure having you back on civil war talk radio. Well, it's entirely a pleasure for me too, Jerry. And, uh, um, it's been a great conversation. I appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.